I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Acts chapter 5. We began a study last week concerning the first century church at Jerusalem. The awareness that church persecution exists, existed in the first century, and it did not deter explosive growth. In fact, I believe it was a key integer to the growth and effectiveness of the first century church. So when hardship arrives, and hardship has arrived, and opposition against the message of the gospel is prevalent, and it is prevalent, we know that it does not defeat the cause of Jesus Christ. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote his last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, here is what he said. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And when the Apostle Paul wrote that, he was not speaking of some future date. Rather, he was talking about the present day in which they lived. The last days. From the first coming until the second coming of Christ, perilous times can be expected. And then he communicated, elaborated, on what those perilous times would be. He says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers. He goes on and says, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And certainly those are hallmarks of the era in which we live and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one author said, selfishness always creates violence. The demand to have your own way, to do your own thing, to stand up for your own rights, this spread across a nation creates pools of dissent and attrition against one another. And no doubt, we are engaged in ministry where all of these things are prevalent. Perilous times. I don't speak through this series of messages to defeat you, but rather to renew or revive your perspective to the effectiveness of the gospel in spite of all of this. When we arrive here in Acts chapter 5, we are jumping into the middle of an unfolding story yet again. The apostles are propagating the message of Jesus Christ. They are preaching the words of life. They are preaching the gospel. They are dealing with opposition. As we studied last week, the Sanhedrin pulls Peter and John off of Solomon's porch, throws them in prison, and then as they release them, they tell them, do not speak in the name of Jesus anymore, which of course does not work. They continue on in the message. Now in Acts chapter 5, we're about to jump into a moment where the apostles are yet again before this board of inquisition. And they are being threatened at this point with death. And a man named Gamaliel steps up and gives sage advice. So we find ourselves now in this room with the apostles and the Sanhedrin. And in Acts 5.34, we'll pick up the story where Gamaliel steps up to speak. Then... Stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. 
and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this, men rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Now let me just pause for a second and tell you what Gamaliel is attempting to do. He is using his mind. He is speaking common sense. The Sanhedrin, much like they did with Jesus, now wants to slay, to put to death the apostles. Gamaliel steps up and speaks with his horse sense, and he says, as a doctor of the law, a man held in reputation among all the people, let me just tell you, fellas, what we should do. Let's wait and see what comes of their message. Because you'll remember, Theodos had 400 men that followed him and his message, and when Theodos died, everybody that had obeyed his teaching and everybody that had lined up behind him, they dispersed and were scattered. And after that, Judas of Galilee, a zealot, not wanting to be taxed, gathered together a band and fought against that. It was an insurrection, but Judas died and everybody that was behind him, well, they scattered as well upon his death. So what I would say to you is, let these guys speak on Solomon's porch. And what you will find is if there's nothing to this, they'll pass off the scene and all their followers were dispersed. But if there is something to this, you're going to find that you're fighting against God. The Sanhedrin adheres to this message. And in verse 40, the Bible tells us such, and to him they agreed, except they could not stop themselves. For when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And when the apostles were departed, verse 41 tells us, from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then this verse is one of boldness. This verse reveals their heart set and their bravery and the awareness of whom they ultimately answered. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Weren't they silenced? With a night in prison in Acts chapter 4? Weren't they just beaten and told to not speak the name of Jesus anymore? It is stunning and words fail to convey the boldness that is contained in the 42nd verse. That after imprisonment and after beating against all opposition, they daily cease not to preach and teach the name of Jesus Christ. God has no doubt brought us to a cultural moment. I think all of us are aware of the circumstances that exist in the world. The fact is, nobody can take their future for granted. One author said this, and I love it, in a time of universal deception, that is certainly what we are dealing with, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You realize that the Bible by its nature, is countercultural. The scriptural message, the words of life, are counter 
to the thinking of the day in which we live. And in a world dominated by deception and ruled by the prince and the power of this air, to simply tell the truth about Jesus is in and of itself a revolutionary act. And we must determine that we will not be shamed into silence nor intimidated into inaction. And thankfully, we have a blueprint in front of us here in the scripture to know how we should behave. Now remember, in Acts chapter 2, in response to the prayer meeting and in, in accordance with the timeline of God, the Holy Spirit comes down on that room and Peter preaches in the Feast of Pentecost and the Bible tells us 3,000 were saved and baptized and added to the church. That does not happen without the public taking notice. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man who was paralyzed for decades and then uses him as an object lesson on Solomon's porch to preach the message of new life in Jesus Christ. They are imprisoned in Acts chapter 4. They are silenced in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 5, they are still preaching the name of Jesus and the power of God is incredibly visible. But the cost is about to get higher. The heat is about to be turned up just a little bit higher. And again, it is the power of God that is the source of all of this. In Acts chapter 5, earlier than the verses that we were reading a moment ago, we read of further explosive growth of the church in verse 14. Believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and of women. This is in the midst of opposition. This is... Weeks, months after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was public. This is shortly after the apostles are scattered and Peter denies. This was an expensive thing to declare the name of Jesus Christ. And yet people are responding to the message of the gospel because it is always and ever potent. Here in Acts chapter 5, having been imprisoned, the church is still growing. People are still believing in Jesus Christ. And the power of God is so evident, something amazing is communicated in Acts 5 and verse 15. The church is growing so much, in so much that they, people of the community, brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about under Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. This is genuinely an electrifying scene. A man has been healed who was paralyzed. Undeniable power from God. This upsets the Sadducees who denied miracles, denied the resurrection. The church is growing so explosively. The doctrine of Jesus Christ so powerfully communicated. Peter and John have the hand of God so evidently upon them with the apostles that Peter, people are bringing people that are sick out into the street, laying them on cots, on blankets, on couches, hoping that as Peter passes by, just his shadow would overpass them and they would be healed. From the surrounding villages around the Judean hillside and the farms that were there, they're coming into Jerusalem desperate for healing and they are healed. And the Bible says every one of them are healed. I have to interject here for just a second. This is an amazing move of God. This is visible, tangible power. These are true miracles, signs, and wonders. Those are Bible words. Here's what I need to interject. The Apostle Paul was writing to the believers at Corinth, 
And he makes an important distinction. In writing his letter in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, in this era of ministry, post-death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the New Testament era opens with the apostles being authenticated by God's power in this way. The truth is, the early New Testament church body did not experience the things that the apostles experienced, nor did they perform the miracles that the apostles performed. In fact, Acts 2 educates us in verse 43 when it says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So, as one author said, contrary to the teaching of many today, The early church was not a miracle-working church. Rather, they were a church with miracle-working apostles. The gifts of those signs and wonders and mighty deeds was limited to the apostles and, as we'll see shortly, their close associates in ministry like Stephen. And these gifts have ceased. The implication here is that the power of God was clearly evident and the Sanhedrin takes note. I think all of us would understand that if the healing of one paralyzed man roused the Sanhedrin to clear Peter and John off of Solomon's porch and throw them into prison, then certainly a city turned upside down with these kinds of miracles and powers would be something that made it across the desk of the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, we find that that is exactly the case. Then the high priest rose up, And all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, filled to the brim. They were overflowing. They are under the influence of raging anger and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Things have been turned up a little bit because earlier it was Peter and John shuffled off Solomon's porch and cast into prison. Here, it's all 12 of the apostles. All 12 of the leaders of this quote-unquote movement are cast into the common prison, and yet another miracle takes place. A prison escape, not of sorts, a miraculous prison escape takes place. The Sanhedrin, I think, in an effort to disgrace the apostles, in an effort to marginalize their message, at least in the eyes of public opinion. Whether they're guilty or they're innocent, casting them into prison will certainly cast dispersion on their name. Certainly this will marginalize their message because they will be looked at as common criminals. But God steps in. It's a beautiful contrarian word used in Acts 5, 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the doors the prison doors, and brought them forth and said, and this is amazing to me, go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people the words of this life. Don't you find it interesting that the angel told them to go right back into the temple and speak the words of life? Because I do. When every instinct in them said, run, the Lord said, speak. And he said to them, speak to the people the words of life. In essence, don't back away from it. 
In essence, don't take away from it. Don't water it down. Don't make it more palatable or more comfortable to hear. Just continue to deliver the whole message of the truth. They were walked out of prison. And sometimes the Bible is lost on us in the sense that we read through something like that and are not amazed as we should be. We have become such a generation of people affected by visual imagery that to read this account doesn't really excite the senses. But I need you to understand what happens. The next day, we read this in verse 21. And when they heard that, this is the apostles, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned now into the hall of judgment there where the Sanhedrin is gathered and I'm certain wringing their hands they are effectively saying we we have a bit of a problem we had 12 that were in the common prison and when we went down to the prison just a minute ago just so you all know this is not us we did not do this when we got to the prison listen to the detail that they give saying the prison truly We found shut with all safety. This is not on us. Listen, when we got there, we are telling you the truth. Honestly, the prison was shut with all safety. And the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. There was nobody in the common prison. All 12 of them were gone. Now, why the Holy Spirit does not inspire Luke to give us more detail to this account, I do not know, but this is a story I'd like to hear. An angel arrives in the common prison with the 12 apostles and merely walks them out. I don't know if they were gifted with cloaks of invisibility, but that would be cool, would it not? I don't know if they had a universal key to every prison door, In heaven, they have a key machine and every prison can be opened. I don't know. What I do know is this. When the high priest's servants got there, the door was shut, the guards were awake, they were on duty, but the apostles were out. And like a breaking news story, I love what happens in verse 25. Right as these people are delivering the fact, we went to the prison and no one was in there, in comes somebody from a side door and they say, behold, The men that you put in prison, uh, they're standing in the temple, and they are teaching the people. Now to us, we're like, okay, Bible story, Acts 5.25, whatever. This is a stunner. These guys that you just imprisoned, they're out of prison. Not only are they out of prison, they are throwing it in your face. They are back out there on Solomon's porch and they are teaching the people. There's no quit in these guys. They are fearless. They will not be shamed into silence. They will not be intimidated into inaction. They just press on. I have found all of my life, people have preached the Bible to me and they've said, don't be a rebel. Don't be a rebel. Don't be a rebel. And now the older I get, I'm like, hold on a second. This is a book of rebellious acts. You are to be a revolutionary. Now, I have to be careful because this is live streamed. When I say be a revolutionary, what I mean is to tell the truth is a revolutionary act. We aren't looking for fights. We aren't propagating a message of preferences. 
We're talking about Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. End of clause. This is a book of revolutionary acts. And I think to myself, it's stunning to me. When the Sanhedrin gets them back in, they do not ask them, how did you get out? Would that not have been like the most pressing question? How did you do that? Okay, we put you in there last night. I went home, had a meal, uh, put on all of my awesome priest garments this morning, paraded through the market on the way here to the Hall of Judgment, condescendingly and self-righteously looked at everyone around me, sat here, and now you guys are, they don't ask them, it's almost like they don't want to know the truth. That's kind of the world that we live in, isn't it? It's almost like they don't want to know the truth. There's a little clue wrapped up here in the scripture that reveals just that. In, in Acts 5.28, they can't even bring themselves to say the name Jesus. Here's what it says. They bring him in and they say, did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? They almost gag on it. In this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, get this, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Yeah, because it is. Now, just rewind in Scripture, because we tend to forget things. Do you remember when the riotous mob began to shout, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate goes through what wasn't even a Roman custom, was a Jewish custom of washing his hands and basically publicly saying, this man's blood is not on my hands, and the people chant in unison, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, and now they're really distancing themselves from that stance. Whoa, 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 boys. Hey, guys, you're intending to bring this man's blood on our hands. You shouted you wanted it. Now you don't want to even know the truth. You're not even inquiring how we got out of jail. You can't even bring yourself to say his name. Now, I got to believe that the apostles are a little emboldened here because they know. They know they're in the right and the Sanhedrin is in the wrong. And this is where our boy Peter comes in again in verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, what I think that means is Peter stood up and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And all the apostles said, amen. So be it. Now, amen is a word that people say in some churches to encourage the pastor in his communication of the truth. Now, you don't have to do that, but I'm just saying it happens in places. People laugh at his jokes in other places. Let me just go with it. People give them $100 handshakes in other places. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying it could happen in other places. It'd be okay if some of that stuff happened here, like an amen or 100 bucks. I don't know. I don't know. Then Peter goes further, as he always does. He knows he's got the Sadducees in the room. Peter does not chicken out. He communicates the message of Jesus Christ And he declares that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the guilt of the Sanhedrin. In effect, he says, you did crucify the true Messiah. The proof of it is that he resurrected from the dead. Peter then goes further and he says, oh, by the way, you've brought us in here. We want you to know we're witnesses of it. 
We saw him resurrected. We communicated with him. Things ramp up here as we read this in verse 33. When they, that's the Sanhedrin, heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That's exactly what they did to Jesus. If we just kill him, the message will go away. If we just oppose it, if we just kill this group of messengers, the message will die out. Oh, contraire, because Jesus himself declared, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And the word of God is not some static thing that you can hide away. It is a living, breathing organism. It is the word of God. It is still powerful. It cannot be contained. This is the moment that Gamaliel steps up. And he gives his sage advice and they adhere to him, but not before they beat the apostles. Things are ramping up. I mean, earlier, it was Peter and John cast into a night of prison and they were told, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Yeah, they're going to do that. Now we've got 12, we put them in the common prison and we are now elevated to the point where they're talking about killing the apostles. Gamaliel steps up, salvages that moment, but the Bible says the Sanhedrin now beats the apostles. They have been physically beaten. And something that boggles my mind arrives in verse 41. Just listen. Here's what the Bible says in verse 41. The Apostles are the they in this verse. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that, and it does not say they rejoiced that they got out of jail. That's worthy of rejoicing, right? It does not say that they rejoiced that they got out of jail. It does not say they rejoiced that they made it out alive. Thank God for Gamaliel. We were dead. Thank God for Gamaliel. Sleeping on that floor would have been tough. Thank God we met an angel. They didn't rejoice that they met an angel. That's worthy of rejoicing over. It simply says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. That was their perspective on life. They were infused with happiness because God counted them faithful enough and worthy to suffer like Jesus did. Our thinking is so opposite of first century church thinking, which is probably why we don't fill cities with our doctrine nor communicate a potent gospel to the dead in sin world that we live in. We count it all honor and worthy of rejoicing when we're off the hook. When people are ignorant of our testimony for Jesus Christ, even inviting somebody to Easter Sunday, then they got to come here and they're going to know I go to church here and they're going to want to talk to me and they're going to see and it's a little embarrassing and then you're going to get up there and you're going to do this stuff and I get a little embarrassed that you're up there and then I got to pray at the restaurant and people are going to know I'm here so I pray quick. I live it. I've told you this a thousand times as a pastor. I live it. Sometimes I just want to blend in and the moment that I say I'm a pastor, everything changes. I'm a pastor. Where? Weddington. Where? Graceway. What? Baptist. Oh, man. <laughs> if you'd have just stopped asking. Stop asking at Weddington. Who cares? I'm a pastor. Why do you need to know more? Just take Graceway. You had to know, didn't you? Baptist. Oh, those people. Yes, those people. You know what I want sometimes just to blend in, man? I don't want to stand out. I just want to go with the flow. And here's what the apostles are saying to us. Chuck that line of thinking. Stop prioritizing your safety and security and peace over the message of the gospel. 
Stop being so immature spiritually that you count blending in as worthy of rejoicing over when these guys said, I can't believe it. We're finally like Jesus. We also suffered shame. And you do realize this is the same group of people that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, they scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And so this time they're saying, I didn't run, man. I didn't run this time. I'm not shamed into silence. I'm not intimidated into inaction. I boldly went back out on that porch and taught people the words of life. It's awesome to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. That's very different than our world. In fact, our church should just look like them and think like them so nobody thinks we're weird. We're weird, especially you. And we're not weird because we do things different than everybody else. Jesus' name makes us weird enough to a world ruled by the prince and the power of this air. It's a stunning thing when we read it. That's why verse 42 is gripping. There was just no quit in them. Spurgeon wrote something on this. I love it. It's very strong. Here's what he said. We are so gentle and quiet We don't use strong language about other people's opinions, but let them go to hell out of charity to them. We're not at all fanatical. We would not wish to save any sinner who does not particularly wish to be saved. Neither would we thrust our opinions upon them, though we know they are being lost for lack of knowledge of Christ crucified. Do not drivel away your existence upon baser ends, but count the glory of Christ to be the only object worthy of your manhood's strength, the spread of the truth, the only pursuit worthy of your mental powers. Spend and be spent in your master's service. Now, I'll tell somebody about Jesus if they come up to me and say, I understand you're a Baptist pastor at Graceway out in Weddington. Oh, yes. I'm very interested in your Christ. Can he do for me what he's done for you? Well, he can. Why don't you sit down? What I don't want to do is go to the individual who I know wants to make fun of me for being a pastor and say to them, can I tell you about Jesus and what Jesus did for me he can do for you? (laughs) Ah, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Your cult-like existence out there, Pastor Chris. You're a weirdo. You believe in Jesus. Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to go around and just propagate everything that we stand for and every idiosyncratic thing that we believe and every preference that we hold on to. If we could just tell people about Jesus, we would be genuine revolutionaries, but we have been shamed into silence and intimidated into inaction. We are anything but like the first century church. And out of charity to our neighbors, we let them go to hell. And out of charity to our co-workers, we maintain peace and let them go to hell for lack of knowledge of Christ crucified. Because the cost of telling them about Christ crucified, I might not get invited to the lunch group, which with my personality type is a total win. I don't want to go to the lunch group. I want to sit in my car alone. It's probably why I'm a pastor. It's about to get hotter And maybe this passage of Scripture could have a message unto itself, but I think it fits in here so beautifully because the pressure and the persecution is about to go beyond the apostles, and now it's going to get out into the church. By the time we get into Acts chapter 6, the church has grown so much there in Jerusalem, numerically, that just carrying out the daily ministration has become too much for the 12 apostles. 
And so they say to the church of thousands of people, look you out from among you, seven men, guys that are of honest report, that are full of faith and wisdom and have the Holy Ghost in them, that can handle all of these practical matters of ministry so that we, the apostles, can give ourselves to the communication of the word and to prayer. The church steps up and does it. And we know, at least we know, two of these guys' names, most of us, Stephen and Philip. Philip the evangelist and Stephen we know for a different reason. By the time we get into Acts chapter 6, we read, There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, Stephen has been able to perform some miracles. He is in a unique position in the church in Jerusalem as one of those that was a near associate of the apostles that also did these signs and wonders, and that gets the attention of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps their meeting was something like this. Peter and John we've heard and dealt with. In fact, the apostles, we've chucked them into prison, but there's a new few names that keep popping up. Who is this Stephen that we keep hearing about? So there's a certain group, and and we just read them, and I don't need to enlighten you about all of them. Needless to say, this is an august group of seminary doctorates. These are self-righteous, Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, them of Cilicia and of Asia, and they begin to dispute with Stephen. They are now opposing his message, though they cannot defeat or refute the message of Stephen. Verse 10 of Acts 6 tells us they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. This isn't because Stephen was incredibly eloquent or articulate. It is because he is speaking the wisdom of the words of life and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes I think pastors over emphasize the life-changing nature of one message when the fact is if we would just communicate the word of God over a lifetime, lives will be changed. Infused by the words of life and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what Stephen is doing and they cannot refute his message and so they simply attack him. Verse 12 of Acts 6 says they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes And the language here seems yet again light in English, but it means an immediate violent attack. This is cruel. They take him, came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses, that's what they did to Jesus, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, this temple and the law. For we have heard him say, That this Jesus of Nazareth, and you can hear or see all of the Sanhedrin just wince at that name. That Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now you say, kind of like we're looking at you right now. No. Different. Literally, his face shined. I I think it was emitting the Shekinah glory of God like we see in the Old Testament. I think it was undeniable. I mean, I look angelic, I get it, but I mean, this was different. Anybody in the Sanhedrin that was staring at him while they were asking him questions was thinking to themselves, why is his face glowing? His face, his face is glowing. That's different. 
Not like the stage lights on pastor's forehead. I know what that looks like. This is different face glowing. Fact, in all of my years, I've never seen face glowing like this. It's as though he is an angel. He is emitting the glory of God. This stands out quite dramatically. And the Bible simply tells us as the story flows on, Stephen will now preach to them the unvarnished truth of Jesus Christ. There is no denying that this message is different. There's no denying that this is a heavenly message. This man's telling the truth. We can't deny these miracles. We can't deny his face is glowing. We can't deny that this guy's fearless. He's communicating the unvarnished truth. And when they heard these things, Acts 7.54, they were cut to the heart again. They are convicted. And rather than submit to the conviction humbly, they gnashed on him with their teeth. That's how violently angry they were. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, just like Jesus, when he said, Father, forgive them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I don't know if Stephen had a family, but I do know this. He didn't get to say goodbye. He went in preaching, and he's stoned and left for dead. He's gone. No goodbyes. He's not going to any more small group gatherings around Jerusalem in the houses to break bread and fellowship and hear the apostles' doctrine and pray. It's over. He's gone. This is an an incredibly tragic scene, but I need you to just walk through the scripture and listen to this blueprint. In Acts 2, Pentecost. Acts 3, miraculous healing. Acts 4, imprisonment, explosive church growth. Acts 5, beating and imprisonment, explosive church growth. Acts 6 and 7, Stephen is stoned, and oh, by the way, the Bible just told us that our first interaction with a guy named Saul is standing there when Stephen is stoned. He's part of the action, and he's going to be converted. He's going to be saved, and he will become the greatest New Testament missionary that we know of, writing more than a third of the New Testament that we have. Every time persecution is on the scene, every time opposition arrives, God does a miraculous work, and that's counterintuitive. Times of peace and times of affluence should create energy, but it doesn't. It's when things get hard. It's when faith gets stretched that people end up getting to work. I don't believe that when Stephen got to heaven, he felt like he had wasted his life. Now, we weren't there. We don't know it, but we do hear him talk. We do know, and and again, I, I wish there was time to study all of this out, that when Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus standing. And Jesus is depicted, is seated at the right hand of God. And in this moment, Jesus is standing. I don't mean that he's honoring Stephen, but I do think that the Lord is always near when hardship arrives and persecution exists. I don't know what he was doing. He may have been extending his hand. 
He may have been nodding at Stephen, but I do know this. When Stephen got to heaven, he had counted it worthy of rejoicing that he was a martyr. And the evidence that we have that that would have been his mindset is when the apostles are walking back to the house, they're rejoicing with each other that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. The word martyr is interesting. Somebody who dies for the cause of Christ. But I want you to think of it in this term. Stephen was called to die for his faith, but we're called to live for ours. A living martyr is somebody who puts to death the ambitions of self-interest, the ambitions of mere security and self-absorption and self-sufficiency, and understands, Romans 12, 1, that they are to offer themselves a living sacrifice which is worthy and acceptable and reasonable to the Lord. This isn't about us. It's all about Jesus. That's why we love what we read in the 42nd verse of Acts 5, that they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Those are the words that the Lord Jesus left for us. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There's nowhere you can go with the message of Christ that he's not there with you. There's no place you can go too dark for that light. There's no place you can go too hopeless for that hope. There's no place you can go too dead for that new life. The fact is, the problem with our world is not the message of the gospel. It's the messengers of the gospel. We have been shamed into silence and intimidated into inactivity and merely being looked at differently is too much for us. You know, Easter's coming. It's one of the easiest days of the year to invite somebody to come to church and to hear the gospel message. But sometimes even that just costs too much. And so we make it even easier. We'll just print thousands of invitations and the gospel's right on. And all you have to do is hand that to somebody. And they can see and hear and be confronted with the God. But sometimes even that's too much. Because we are so silent and intimidated and inactive. One pastor wrote this. People will think we're strange. They will think we react in funny ways. The church then is not to wring its hands and say, Oh, what a terrible thing. We're being opposed. The powers that be are against us. They won't let us do what we want. What an awful thing. No, rejoice like these early Christians did. Count it an honor that you have been called to suffer a little for his name's sake. Stand up and be counted. These are perilous times. The word of God is not bound. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder it. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can change it. Our physical circumstances are quite irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference. Opposition is here. Terrible, deadly opposition designed to strike at the jugular vein, but the word of God is sufficient. Are you sharing it? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. 
Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.